Welcome to Movable Dough. This is Steve Danielson. Join me as I interview and promote living composers. In this series of interviews, I talk with composers about their musical journeys, their past successes and setbacks, and their current projects. For more information about this podcast, as well as a complete archive of episodes, please visit sdcompose.com slash movabledoe. Hey, this is Steve. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Movable Dough. My guest today is Dr. Melissa Dunphy. Melissa is an Australian-American composer specializing in vocal, political, and theatrical music. In 2009, she gained national attention with her large-scale choral work, The Gonzalez Cantata, which was featured in The Wall Street Journal, on Fox News, and MSNBC's The Rachel Maddow Show, among others. She has received awards from uh, ASCAP, the Lottie Lehman Foundation, Boston Metro Opera, and Boston Choral Ensemble. Melissa holds a PhD in music composition from the University of Pennsylvania and a BM in theory and composition from Westchester University. She has been composer in residence for several ensembles, such as the Immaculata Symphony Orchestra, Volte Choral Arts Lab, Volte Choral Institute, and the St. Louis Chamber Chorus. Melissa Dunphy, welcome to Movable Dough. Hi, hi. I'm so happy to be here, Steve. Thank you for inviting me on. Fantastic. Well, I think you are the first Australian composer that I have talked to yet, which I'm super excited about. I've never been to Australia yet. Uh huh. It's a goal in the future. <laughs> so since you were born and raised in Australia before coming to the States in your early 20s, uh, I'm curious about your experiences growing up. Did you yeah. did you come from a musical family? Absolutely not, actually. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I am the weird musical black sheep of my family, I guess you could say. I mean, I think there are some like distant cousins or aunts back, um, you know, in the in the ancestry chain who uh, did some stuff with the uh, Chinese opera, actually, you know, the whole their own opera tradition. Uh-huh. Um, but within my general family circle, no. Um, so, you know, I grew up in an immigrant household. Um, and uh, I was I was taken to music lessons as a kid because um, my mother had read that music lessons make you better academically at math and science. And like a lot of immigrant families and particularly Asian immigrant families, I was very much encouraged to go into a STEM career. And, in, in, you know, the idea of going into an arts career was basically off the table. I mean, it wasn't even on anyone's radar. Right. Um, but I was taken to music lessons as a kid. And, uh, and you know, I'm going to make it sound worse than it probably actually was in some ways, because my parents did support my music habit to the extent of, you know, getting an instrument for me, taking me to music lessons, but they were always begging me to quit. <laughs> <laughs> That's a little different story. (laughs) Yeah, like begging me to quit music and concentrate on what they considered to be my real studies, which was, you know, math and science and, you know, to a lesser degree, humanities subjects at school that were sort of serious subjects. So, you know, I remember as a kid um, uh, being interrupted when I tried to practice music and told that it was, you know, interfering with them trying to watch the television. being banished to the garage to practice the violin, which fair, you know, the first five years of learning the violin, you sound like a cat being strangled. So, you know, I understand <laughs> to some extent that impulse. Um, but my parents would have been overjoyed if I had come to them one day and said, I'm sick of music. I don't want to do it anymore. Um, they would have been overjoyed. <laughs> <laughs> that said, 
um, to, to your point about growing up in Australia, um, one of the really big differences between music education in Australia versus music education in the United States is that um, in general, in Australia, particularly in the cities, I grew up in Brisbane, the string programs in, in schools, in like elementary, uh, middle, high schools are way more robust than hmm. American string programs. Flip side of that is America is way has way more robust wind and brass programs because, of course, of marching band, right? right. And uh, we don't do marching band in Australia, really. We don't have marching bands in football games or anything like that. Um, so, you know, my American friends and my students that I tell this to are astounded when I say I went to a, a school, an all girls school, and in the at the high school level. When I was there, we had not one, not two, but three full string orchestras and a symphony orchestra at wow. my high school, at my girls' high school. Uh, the whole school had like fewer than a thousand students in. Um, and there were string ensemble competitions where we would compete against other schools with our string ensembles. And, our, you know, and, and I grew up surrounded by string culture um, and, you know, hanging out with all of my friends who played, you know, we all played in string quartets and we played in youth orchestras uh, on stringed instruments. And from what I can tell, I'm sure there are pockets where it's different because America is vast and diverse, but from what I can tell, that's much rarer in America um, than yeah. it is in Australia. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting being someone from that background and coming to America and uh, continuing my music education here in America where the situation on the ground is very different. When you came to America, is that around the time that you started composing as well? Because I heard that you started composing a little later in life, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. So, you know, I wrote some stuff in high school music classes uh, as assignments, and I really enjoyed doing it. But um, it didn't even occur to me, even though I loved doing it, oh, I could be a composer one day. Like, it just didn't occur to me. Um, until uh, when I was 24. I was a full-time actor at the Harrisburg Shakespeare Festival um, in a production of A Midsummer Night's Dream. And the music director of that show, who was supposed to write all of the music for the show, had some personal problems and had to drop out of the show very close to opening with none of the music written. So the director came to me desperate uh, three weeks before we went up and said, you're a musician. Can you please write the music for the show? You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it was an act of desperation. Cause it's like, you know, I was performing in the show was one of the fairies. So I knew how the show was supposed to go. Uh, I was a musician. So, you know, surely I could come up with something. And, uh, and I took on the challenge and it was while I was writing those songs, which was, you know, the first sort of, classical music if you want to call it that you know the first sort of that western european tradition of music uh, uh composition that i had really done since since my teens um i i got bit by the bug really bad uh -huh. as it turns out <laughs> um and i had an epiphany at about two o'clock in the morning while i was working on that show um uh, by myself where i went oh holy this is what i want to do with the rest of my life this is going to be it so yeah, went to Google and uh, Googled, which was like brand new, I think in 2004, <laughs> um, Googled, how do I become a composer? And Google 
told me, you know, you probably want to go to grad school. Uh, so I said, well, I guess I have to start my music education over again because I don't have an undergrad degree. So at the ripe age of 24, as I tell people, uh, I began a Bachelor of Music um, at Westchester University just outside of Philadelphia. And uh, and then, as you mentioned, got my PhD at Penn uh, out of there. So, yeah. So what did your parents think when you said, I'm going to do composition? Oh, they were livid. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So there's a little bit of a backstory here, which is, you know, it makes this even more complicated. But um, I almost fulfilled my mother's dream of going into STEM. I, I like put the dream in her hands and then I snatched it away. Oh, no. <laughs> cool, yeah, thankless child. Um, I, um, I graduated from high school early, a year early. I was 16 and I got really good grades in math and science. So I guess the music thing worked. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um, I got into a medical school program uh, in Australia. There were at the time one or two medical school programs you could get into straight out of high school to become a medical doctor doctor uh, and I got into one of them which everyone said you know was it, they're very competitive of course and everyone was like oh my gosh you got in you have to go, go become a doctor right so I moved down to Sydney to the University of New South Wales and I started a medical degree um, I lasted nine months nine months of you know biology and anatomy I was I was elbow deep in cadavers every Wednesday morning for three hours at 16 which now looking back I'm like that's weird um, <laughs> um and uh I was sort of on the path and then about nine months in I just I sudden I knew I knew I was like I'm gonna be a bad doctor because my heart isn't in this the mm -hmm. way it needs to be to be a really good doctor. Yeah. Um, I'm miserable and I'm going to continue being miserable. It's not going to get better. Um, so I quit. And that was like the sort of the, the big scandal in my family for a long time was, you know, the daughter who got into medical school, like almost achieved the dream. And then, and then, you know, like beyond anyone's comprehension, decided to throw it all away and, <laughs> and quit and walk away from this career that was everybody's supposed to be everybody's dream. Yeah. Um, so I spent, you know, between so, that, you know, I was 17 when I quit med school. Uh, and between that and age 24, I really didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And I was bouncing around doing different jobs, trying to figure it out, like just always trying to like, what is it I wanted to do? I want to work in law. Do I want to work in engineering? You know, I, I'm still picking these like the careers that I'm supposed to do, you know, <laughs> like, the, mm -hmm. like the acceptable things. Um, so, yeah, when music finally came up. I will say there were two reactions from my family. One was, oh, thank God she's going back to college and she's actually going to get a degree. We thought she was just <laughs> going to be a dropout for the rest of her life. But then number two was, what the heck are you going to do with a music degree? Um, and I think at the time I told my mom, like, I could, I could become a college professor. Like I could, I could teach and become a professor. And she sort of molded over and went, I guess that's respectable. Um, <laughs> But uh, as it turns out, um, that's not really what I do. Like I never, I don't want to be, I mean, I, I teach, um, I'm an adjunct uh, a teacher at Rutgers University in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I realized while I was in grad school, the tenure track rat race, the, uh, the limitations of academia, they don't appeal to me at all. I much prefer being 
if, and it's a hot life, but it's, it's a frio life in a lot of ways. Um, mm-hmm. the, 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 the idea of being a freelance composer where I get to pick and choose what I want to compose and who I want to work with. And I'm, you know, practically making a living out of what I wanted to do in the first right. place, which is write music. Um, my parents are still disappointed in me. So <laughs> no, no good news for those of you out there struggling against your family. You just got to do what you know you have to do. And, you know, it's their choice to be proud of you or be disappointed <laughs> in you. <laughs> well, speaking of your, your parents, I actually want to sort of touch on that a little bit as we move to talking a little bit about your music. Because I know a lot of your music yeah. is sort of, not sort of, it is quite political. Yeah, uh, sure. Yeah. Uh, do you think that uh, being raised by immigrant parents had some some bearing on the direction you wanted to take with your music compositions? I think definitely. Um, you know, I feel like I feel like there's been a thread in my life of being the outsider in a lot of areas of my life. You know, so uh, my my mother was uh, is Chinese. She was a refugee from uh, the Cultural Revolution in China in the you know sixties and seventies. Mm-hmm. Um, so in nineteen seventy two, she swam from mainland China to Hong Kong to escape the Cultural Revolution. Um, a harrowing journey that I have frankly no frame of reference for. I've never had to do anything like that. My life has never been at risk in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know that's how she got out, and uh, and I I was you know told these stories at a sort of age appropriate time, um, and learned about this wild history of that side of my family and what they had to go through. It's re- it's really interesting because I sometimes um, you know as an adult connect with people who have um, who are descendants of like Holocaust survivors, for example, right. and we talk about that interest that weird disconnect between our ancestors our parents or grandparents um who went through this incredibly traumatic event to give us a better life um but then by creating a better life for their children or grandchildren they they there's like always going to be a disconnect there because we the descendants can never quite grasp what it was like for them and they can never quite grasp what it's like to sort of grow up in relative safety and security um so i think that's like one of the uh the the conflicts between me and where my family um i uh you know i i felt like an outsider in some ways from Australian sort of white Anglo-Australian culture because I grew up in this immigrant family. I saw my parents experience racism. They taught me English as my first language because they experienced so much racism um, with their accented English. Mm-hmm. Uh, my biological father is Greek. He was a refugee from World War II in the 1950s, the sort of post-World War II era where the Mediterranean was very much under reconstruction and there was like no economy to speak of. And there was a mass sort of exodus of immigrants from Greece and Italy to Australia and America um, and other Western countries. Um, so, you know, I um, I saw through my parents' eyes their sense of being an outsider. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father couldn't read or write English at all, um, like illiterate in English. Um, and so they sort of 
that part of their push for me to become educated was kind of this like have a much better life than we had you know you have to get educated and, and right. get yourself out of out of our class you know out of the gutter in the, in their eyes um but then I also felt like an outsider from my own family in a lot of ways because I was so westernized as a kid and became sort of the link between my family and the western world in a lot of ways and then of course when I was 22 I fell in love with an American and decided <laughs> to pull up stumps and move to America and experience you know America that I had seen on television and in the news uh, as an insider, as an American for the first time, but very much feeling, I mean, especially when I moved to America, it was like 2003, two years after 9-11, you know, the height of the Bush era. Um, and I felt like I was just walking around with my hair on fire constantly going like, what, this place is a circus. Of course it got much worse. <laughs> like, like, I didn't, I didn't know what, uh, what circus meant in, in 2003, but I thought I did. Um, but it was really, you know, watching America as an immigrant is more than anything else drove my political awakening, awakening, um, as a as an artist and so it sort of happened concurrently right because it was mm -hmm. happening around the time I realized I wanted to be a composer I was observing America and American politics and going like what is happening <laughs> sure so so when did you realize that you could sort of use your compositions to express your political voice almost straight away um when I was in undergrad at Westchester I mean I I have a I have a very strong belief that as an artist, you should make art about the things that you feel really strongly about, you know, whatever that might be. And it might be the art itself. It might be extra musical things, you know, or for me, it's politics. It was, it was and continues to be in many ways, uh, politics that make me that give me the, the, the greatest joys, the greatest frustrations, the greatest sense of purpose. Mm -hmm. um, and so, of course, I'm going to write art about that. You know, like I, I, I love many things about this world, but for anybody who's composed, you know that, you know, it takes a lot of energy and commitment and focus to compose. So you have to pick a subject that you want to write music about that is going to sustain your interest and that spark across the sometimes years long process of creating a piece of music. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I was so, I was so angry at the, at, at uh, many aspects of like the Bush administration in the first decade of this century. Uh, and I wrote a lot of pieces about that, including, as you mentioned, the Gonzalez Cantato, which, you know, very obviously came out of that period. Um, and then as it kept going, you know, I just I saw so many other issues which were inspiring, enraging, you know, hopeful, uh, all of these sorts of things that I'm like, I want to write music about that. Like, that's really going to inspire me to write something meaningful. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, ju I just kept going and it's always just, you know, it's been, if I have a strong emotional reaction to something, then usually there's a voice in my head that's like, that would probably make a pretty good piece of music. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the composer curse, right? It's like, you that's can't, right. 
you enjoy something for what it is. And then you have about a five second window. And then five seconds later, the little voice in your head is like, what would this sound like if you wrote it as music? I'm like, oh gosh, okay. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, well, turning to a, a slightly different topic. Uh, I read that online that in addition to being a gifted composer, you're also an amazing Shakespearean actress. Uh, a lot in, of practice, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the I know the Philadelphia Inquirer called you unquestionably the city's leading Shakespeare ingenue. Mm-hmm. So have you always had this love of theater? Yes. Um, yeah, it was pretty much uh, just a couple of years after I started music lessons. Um, and this is another sort of difference in Amer- American versus Australian education, which is going to explain a few things maybe to your viewers or listeners who... Um, who might not have thought about this issue before. Why are there so many Australian actors in Hollywood? Hollywood is infested with Australian actors. And like the London stage is also in fact, let me tell you why. The reason is it is not unusual in Australia to get one-on-one speech and drama, AKA acting lessons, the same way you would get one-on-one music lessons mm. um, in America or in Australia. So it, uh, you know, through at least in the 80s and 90s when I was getting my education in Australia, um, when you, if you have the opportunity to sign up for music lessons through your school, quite often speech and drama is an option where you get one-on-one acting coaching, like spe- drama and speech coaching with a teacher, qualified teacher, uh, as a child. That is pretty much unheard of in America and where you do find one-on-one acting coaching in America, because it's so rare, it tends to be like $300 an hour or something, right. you know, completely out of the reach of, of most parents and students. But uh, when it was offered to me, it was actually the same price or even slightly cheaper than like violin lessons or piano lessons is the same kind of thing. So at the tender age of eight, I started speech and drama lessons because my parents were, you know, concerned that I was, you know, uh, I mean, it seems ridiculous now, but they were concerned that I was too shy. (laughs) 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 Like, okay, mom, Uh, (laughs) they were concerned that I was too shy. They wanted me to, you know, um, have a really good command of the English language and to be able to express myself well. Um, And, uh, I learned, you know, the first thing you sort of learn how, what to do is, is how to speak, how to enunciate, how to project, how to read poetry, how to craft a monologue. Um, and uh, I took speech and drama coaching lessons all the way up through my teens and actually got like an associate diploma of speech and drama when I was 18, I think, wow. um, which also qualified me to teach. Uh, I spent years as a um, sort of part-time theater teacher for children's theaters and te- teen Shakespeare camps. And Shakespeare was always one of my first loves. Um, I love, I love Shakespeare. I love the whole digging into this sort of ancient language. There are some parallels here to, you know, what are the things that I like? I really seem to like things that come out of these like old European traditions, you know, for better or worse. Um, And uh, these are the things that I was drawn to for one reason or another, like finding new takes on these old forms and traditions. Uh, So yeah, when I first moved to America, and this is before I knew I wanted to be a composer, I moved to central Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania, as I lovingly (laughs) refer to it. 
so sort of the Harrisburg, York, mm-hmm. Lancaster area. Um, our local Walmart had a buggy where the Amish could park their horse and buggy while they went shopping at Walmart. Um, and I was looking for a creative artistic outlet. And there wasn't a lot in the way of music that I could get involved with. So I turned to my sort of my next love, which for creative outlets, which was drama. And uh, so that's where I sort of um, got back into theater. I hadn't done it for a couple of years. Um, But to go back to my original point, so many Australians get this kind of training that, uh, you know, I'm going to offend some Americans here, but we all come to America and we we clean up because, you know, <laughs> American actors don't get this kind of training. So, you know, it's kind of like if you had a, a classically trained violinist competing against someone who was completely self-taught, uh, you know, or only had classroom music lessons at an audition, the the train, the one who's had, you know, private music lessons for 10 years is totally going to clean up at the audition. So that is the reason why next time you go on IMDb to look at the num- the people who in the Hollywood blockbuster that you just saw, and you're like, why the heck are like so many of them Australian? It's because we've all moved to Hollywood with our buckets of training. And there you uh, go. And are beating out American actors. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, so I really, I, I came to a Philly and I started you know doing lots of Shakespeare again um and uh had a really good time working with a lot of local companies here in Philly doing full-time acting not yeah there was there was stretches of full-time acting for sure but the composing started taking more and more of my life over and uh at some point I realized not not too long ago, but a few years ago now, I was like, I have to make a choice because <laughs> I I don't have the energy to you know perform Hamlet on stage and then walk off and write some music, like write a choral piece afterwards. It's like got to be one or the other for me. Uh-huh. I chose composing without a doubt. Yeah. <laughs> well, then I've got one more question for you before we take a break. I'd love to know if there's a composer that's influenced you that you think everyone else should go check out next. Yeah, um, absolutely. This, this, I mean, this is a really hard question, actually, because there are so many uh, amazing composers that I look up to. I'm going to give you two examples, one living and one dead. Okay. I'll start with the dead one. Uh, Mary Lou Williams is an incredible composer who I discovered uh, not very long ago, I'm sad to say, because, you know, she was, she had a very prolific career as a jazz composer and a Mm -hmm. jazz pianist and, um, and just, you know, really broke a lot of boundaries there, but like wrote really good work. The work that I discovered her with was a choral piece called Elijah under the juniper tree that I heard the temple choir sing and it electrified me because it's also a political piece she wrote this piece to criticize the catholic church during world war ii for not doing enough to save the Jews and the people who are being persecuted by the Nazis during World War II and the fascists during World War II. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of, uh, and, you know, there are whole books about this, but, you know, the the idea that the Catholic Church kind of made a, a, a deal with the devil a little bit during World War II, where they turned a blind eye to keep the peace with 
you know, Mussolini and, and uh, what was going on in Europe at the time. Uh, when a lot of Catholics were saying that the Catholic Church had a moral duty to in fact stand against those atrocities and and do more right at the beginning to condemn them and and you know maintain the moral good even if it meant politically uh, uh bad things for them mm. so she wrote this piece uh that was a pretty direct criticism of the catholic church and it you know it resulted in blowback for her um as a composer because mm. people were were upset that she had written this piece. And in fact, even when it was performed at Temple only a few years ago, a couple of the students in the choir refused to sing it because of its message of criticism, which I thought was really, really interesting. Um, that something, you know, this message that's what, 70 years old is still so relevant and, that, and so contentious. Mm-hmm that young people are, you know, making decisions about it. Um, and then the living composer that I want to mention is Sonda Choi, who is based in LA. He was and my very first guest on Movable Dough. I love him <laughs> and I love his music so much. And, uh, you know, he's not on Twitter, but I regular or if he is, he doesn't tweet very often. Um, but I regularly on Twitter, like every now and again, post a link to his setting of the new Colossus. Oh, I love um, his new Colossus. Yeah. I'm like, this is the definitive setting of this piece of this poem. Like it, I tell, you know, it's an, it, the new Colossus is an interesting poem, right? Because it's one of America's most famous poems, but there isn't really a definitive musical setting of it. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons that I believe there isn't a musical setting of it is because it's in iambic pentameter, which is a terrible meter for music. Like it's just a terrible poetry length to set. It's not even about like, oh, you can't set music in five because that's not that's not true. And it's not what it's about. The problem is that pentameter, five beats in a line, it's too many beats in a line. By the time you've sung to the end of the line, you've forgotten what the words were at the beginning of the line. So what Sonda did, which I'm like, yes, this is so perfect, is totally deconstruct it. You're not thinking about it as lines of poetry the way they are on the page anymore. You know, he's he's deconstructing the meter. And in fact, in many cases, like right from the beginning, he's deconstructing the words, you know, um, give, give, give me your give, give, give me your, you know, he's just, he's he's totally reformed the poetry into a, for, into a, a smaller lines that can be set in this incredibly effective way uh, to give the message that he wants to give. And I just, I'm floored by it. It makes me cry every time. And I, w- I tell people, I wish I had written it. And I don't say that about a lot of other choral music because to me, every voice is their own voice. And uh. you should never like wish that you had written something else. But um, God, I wish I had written that piece. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for sharing that. Uh, we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will have a chance to listen to some of the things that Melissa has written. All right. Welcome back. I am talking today with Dr. Melissa Dunphy. So we're going to start today with your piece. What do you think I fought for at Omaha Beach? So I like that several of your pieces have very unconventional sources for the text. Mm-hmm. So I'd love for you to talk about the source of this piece and what was the purpose behind its composition? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, back in, I mean, it seems like another century, doesn't it? Like 2009, 2010, uh, in, in fact, 2000 you know, if going back even further to like the 2004 election, um, marriage equality, gay marriage, whether people of the same sex can get married was a huge issue in America. You know, people say that the 2004 election was actually, you know, in part decided on that issue and America voted uh, against it. And, um, you know, this is an issue that I, that for me, it hits in a couple of different ways. Firstly, I have many, uh, many friends, beloved friends, like, you know, soulmates, really, who are LGBTQ, um, who it, it doesn't make any sense to me that they shouldn't be able to marry who they love or weren't able to marry who they love at the time. Um, and then putting myself in in to some extent their shoes just on this one very practical level i fell in love with an american and the reason we were able to be together was because we could get married when i was in my early 20s i never imagined myself getting married in a couple of years time you know i had a pretty dim view of the institution of marriage if i'm being perfectly honest and uh i but i fell in love with someone from another country and we researched all these methods, like how do we make this relationship work? How do we be together? How do we live on the same continent? What are the different ways that we can do that? We went through all of these options. And finally, the option it came down to was we have to get married. Like it's the only way. Mm -hmm. uh, and when my husband brought this up, you know, my reaction was to burst into tears and say, I love you so much. I will even marry you if that's <laughs> what I have to do. <laughs> If that's what I have to do for us to be together, even marriage is on the table for me. I'm telling, so you know that was like the romantic acceptance. <laughs> um, and for me, like this was a life-defining moment, right? The it, for various reasons, but you know, my husband and I have been together. It'll be for uh, what year is it? Twenty twenty. <laughs> It'll be for eighteen years come September. Um, it's a, a massive part of my life. And the thought back then, a few years into my marriage, the thought of not being able to do that because I happened to be gay was horrifying, like actually, you know, just gut-wrenching to me. Um, and, you know, the thought that my friends couldn't do that was gut-wrenching to me. So this, this, um, this video went around, did the, did the rounds on early Facebook. It went viral, I think in 2010, um, of this elderly man, an 86 year old war veteran giving a speech in front of the main Senate in support of marriage equality. And uh, part of the reason that it, it went viral is because he set up who he was so well at the beginning of the speech, he talks about how he's a lifelong Republican. He is a World War II veteran. He is a VFW chaplain. Um, he grew up on a potato farm in Maine. You know, and these are all 
cultural, social indicators that would make you expect that he would be against the idea of gay marriage, especially at that time. You know, it was so politicized, much as, let's say, vaccines and masks are politicized in 2020 and 2021 America. If you had these social markers, you were expected to think one way about the marriage equality issue. But then he surprises everybody and says that he was asked about this issue. And he said, what do you think I fought for at Omaha Beach for freedom and equality? These are the things that make America a great nation. So I remember watching this video, I burst into tears. I cried, I soaked an entire dishcloth with my tears. Uh, and then I did the thing where I dried my tears and went, I really have to set that to music. So, <laughs> so that was kind of the impetus behind this, yeah. All right. Well, we are now going to take some time and we are going to listen to What Do You Think I Fought For at Omaha Beach, performed here by the Simon Carrington Chamber Singers.
All right, let's turn next to American Dreamers. So I'm really interested in the text for this piece as well, which comes from five young Americans who were brought to this country when they were children. Yeah. So could you tell us about the commission for this project and, and what you hope to accomplish by it? Absolutely. Uh, so there's a wonderful community choir here in Philadelphia called Philharmonia. They're quite uh, a newer group conducted by Mutus Andaya Hart, who is on faculty at Temple. Um, and they approached me, I think, uh, shortly after, you know, the Trump administration came in and the rhetoric, the anti-immigration rhetoric was bad. It was at its, you know, it was frightening, frankly. Um, and as an immigrant myself, you know, it, it was personal to me as well. Um, and as someone who has immigration in my family as well, uh, these stories of, you know, I, I basically grew up really understanding why it is that people leave the places that they leave and why and how difficult it is to make a, a home in a new country and mm -hmm. all of the challenges that come with that. So I was approached by this group who had sung Omaha Beach, the piece that we just heard, and they wanted to, uh, to commission a new work about this immigration issue. Um, and I think right from the beginning, they, they really wanted to talk about um, undocumented immigrants. And I said, I am not an undocumented immigrant. I did the, uh, <laughs> I did the creepy 90 day fiance visa that there's a whole uh, reality television show about nowadays. Yeah, like that was how I came to America. I, I, I'm quite open about it. I'm like, this is the visa that's supposed to be for mail order brides. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, it's weird. Immigration is so weird. Um, anyway, I'm not an undocumented immigrant. Um, my parents at some points in their journey could have been considered undocumented immigrants, but also it was a different time and even in the 1970s. So it's not the same situation as people today. Mm -hmm. In order to write this piece, I have to collaborate with people whose story it is, you know, uh, and, and um, have their stories be what I'm telling, not like putting words into their mouth. I have to understand the issue from the perspective of them, I have to understand the humanity as well. And lucky for me, there was a whole movement online using the hashtag undocupoets where um, undocumented immigrants were writing poetry about their experiences. Mm. And, uh, uh, you know, which is an incredible thing to do because poetry is a a line to humanity you know what i mean like it's 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 a a, a way of finding humanity in people it's so good at yeah. doing that music is too right but poetry you know anyone can write poetry and i went through sort of this hashtag and saw this amazing collection of people writing about their experiences and I reached out to five of them and asked if they would have any desire for me to set their words to music for this group. And they luckily said yes. And so I created this, this piece, which um, really there are four big choral numbers. And then the fifth one I set as a kind of recitative in between the numbers, which sort of tells Marlene Rangel's story of coming to America and her experiences uh, becoming an American. Mm -hmm. um, and really the, the point of this, because I think people, uh, 
when they immediately hear like, oh, you've written a work about undocumented immigrants, they really are expecting it to be a much more um, like, like traumatic and, and, you know, sad and depressing kind of choral work. And it's not that at all because it's their words, their people. This isn't, you know, oh no, these poor pitiable people that we have to save as good liberal Americans. Like it's not that at all. It's these are Americans. These are Americans who are in this unfortunate bureaucratic situation where a racist government is trying to stop them from enjoying the rights of citizenship that all of us Americans have and should have. So, yeah, that's what it's about. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Okay. well, we are going to listen to some highlights from American Dreamers performed here by the singers conducted by uh, Matthew Culleton.
All right, we're going to turn next to Halcyon Days. So for this piece, you collaborated with poet Jacqueline Goldfinger to create uh-huh. a sort of, seemed like to me, a sort of a New Year's prayer <laughs> as we yeah. look from, from what we've lost to what is possible next. Uh, I know this is a rather new piece. Did you write it during the pandemic? Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Um, so Vaches 8, right? Uh, who, incredible group that I have, you know, I'm... I won't make any bones about it. I have been sniffing around this group, begging for a commission for the longest time, like just hoping that one day they'll commission me. And uh, I never, ex- I didn't expect it to happen sort of this way. But, you know, during the pandemic, we were talking and then they asked if I wanted to write something for an Advent concert for them, you know. Um, I think it was like, I think I was writing it in August or so. It was the some of the darkest days of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And I knew I was, you know, they they said, you know, essentially it's a holiday concert, but uh, it doesn't have to be, it, you don't have to ignore the fact that a pandemic is happening. That's sort of part of the, the brief, you know. Um, but at the same time, you know, it can't be a song about how everyone's dying and everything is terrible, <laughs> you know, because it's a holiday concert. And I remember complaining while I was writing it at the time and just being like, you know, I have never felt less like Christmas at this moment in time in my life. And I'm I'm trying to dig down and find that that spirit, you know, that that sense. Um one of the things that I did think about was one of my favorite Christmas songs um, is Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, the original version from Meet Me in St. Louis, um, where it's actually quite dark, you know, it's about a Christmas that didn't happen the way that the characters wanted it to happen. It's since been, you know, prettied up a little bit, but mm-hmm. to be sung more commercially. But the original version is is very sort of, you know, things aren't great right now. Maybe they'll get better next time. And I thought about that and I was like, okay, I love that song. I love the bittersweetness of it. That's the kind of mindset that I'm in. Um, Jackie and I are currently right now working on an opera together. So I said, Jackie, hey, you want to write me a text for an Advent piece as well? (laughs) (laughs) A holiday piece, you know, non-denominational, a piece about... um, well, what we decided to call it Halcyon Days is because people think of Halcyon Days now as meaning like a nostalgic period in the past, uh, but it has a second meaning, like a more specific meaning. It means uh, the calm in a, a calm break in the weather that usually happens around wintertime, like in December. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's sort of about finding that moment of peace uh, in a holiday season, which, as we all know, did not go according to anybody's plans. And, uh, you know, I, I hope helps to reflect some of the some of what we've been going through the past 18 months. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we are now going to listen to Halcyon Days performed here by the BBC Singers, conducted by Nicholas Chalmers.
That's a song by Melissa Dunphy, who was uh, born in Australia but based these days in the USA. A celebration of the sacred in a song called Halcyon Days. And before it, you heard Judith Weir's celebration of a particularly halcyon day beneath a blue, true dream of sky, as she called it. Two pieces performed by the BBC singers at the Neville Holt June Festival that uh, took place just last week. All right, and last today, we are going to turn to your Gonzalez cantata. So this is another one that uses unusual source material for the text. The yeah. Senate Judiciary Committee hearings of former Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez. Not the first choice for most people, I would probably say. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. Uh... So I know you also use sort of unexpected techniques, such as gender reversing the characters and writing in sort of a Baroque style. Yeah. I know, I know you could probably talk about this piece for a while. Could you give us sort of the summary the version? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the quick version is this. I was an undergrad at Westchester University. Um, I was older than the other undergrads, so I knew I had to knock something out of the park. Like, I had a chip on my shoulder. I was like, I gotta write a big piece. I was doing music history at the time, and we had just finished learning about Baruch cantatas. Mm -hmm. And I had an NPR driveway moment where I was listening to the Alberto Gonzalez hearings and thought, that is so dramatic. Tick, 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 tick. Oh my gosh, that would make a really good cantata. <laughs> That's the short version. <laughs> so why did you make some of the choices you did? Like the, the gender reversal oh, of the roles and... The uh, gender yeah. reversal thing. Okay, there's a practical and there's a, a, a political reason I did mm -hmm. that. Um, the the political reason is I, you know, I looked up the, the makeup of the Senate Judiciary Committee. And in 2007, it was 19 men and one woman. And I was mad about that. To this date, 2021, to this date, the Republican Party has never put a woman on the Senate Judiciary Committee. All of the women that have ever been on that committee have been Democrats. And I think the largest number of women that have ever been on that committee is like three or four. It's like an extremely male heavy committee. And of course, one of the most powerful committees in Congress. Um, so I was real mad about that. <laughs> And second practical thing, uh, anyone who's ever been in music school knows this to be true. There are a lot more female singers than there are male singers. And because the audition pool is so much larger in the female population, there are better female singers than there are male singers. So I said, you know, I don't think I can even find 19 male singers to be <laughs> in my cantata, but I know I have more than 19 amazing female singers who I can ask to sing in my show. So, so yeah, it was sort of, you know, an obvious choice. I'll just gender flip everything. Uh, then I'll get the best singers and I'll make a big statement um, about the fact that, you know, you could call it sort of absurd that you have 19 women on stage singing this cantata. But why is it not just as absurd for us to have 19 men on a congressional committee deciding all of these issues? I yeah. say when we see a group of, you know, that many men and no women in any leadership context, we should all be questioning how absurd that is. Uh, and I think that's happening more and more these days. So, um, yeah. All right. Well, we are going to listen to highlights from the Gonzalez cantata performed here by the Mid-Columbia Master Singers.
All right, Melissa, well, if my listeners want to learn more about you, where are you located online? What's the best place for them to go? Uh, if you want a day-to-day connection, you can find me on twitter.com. Uh, <laughs> Google me. I have a blue check mark on Twitter, Melissa Dunphy. Uh, my handle is Mormalike, which is the name of my publishing company. Uh, you can also find me at my website, which is melissadunphy.com, of course. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I'm also on Facebook, but the longer I spend on Facebook, the more I think it's really just a fascism incubator in disguise. And I'm trying to, <laughs> I'm trying to scale down my activity until <laughs> they figure it out. <laughs> so, you know, right. whatever people are comfortable with. <laughs> All right. And hey, listeners out there, just a reminder, speaking of websites, please do visit our website as well, uh, sdcompose.com slash movable dough, where you'll find a full archive of all the past movable dough ep- uh, episodes, as well as a link to our merch store. Well, Melissa Dunphy, it has been a pleasure to talk to you. Your passion is over, overwhelmingly uh, amazing. <laughs> so, thank you thank for you. joining me today on Movable Dough. Absolutely. It's been a great conversation. Thanks. My guest today was composer Dr. Melissa Dunphy. If you do have recommendations for future guests or an idea for the show, please email me at movabledoe at gmail.com. This is Steve Danielson. Keep the music moving.